You are listening to Perplexity. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Perplexity, a mystery podcast. As always, I am your host, Kadra, and today you are tuning in to story three of three in my mini-series, Do No Harm. So today we'll complete the mini-series, and we are going to be talking about Dr. Walter Freeman, also known as one of the founding fathers of the lobotomy. Trigger warning for today's episode, we will be discussing some heavy topics, such as mental illness, and also what could be seen as violence and discrimination against people of color, against women, against people who are in the LGBTQ plus community. So listener discretion is advised, especially for listeners below the age of 13. And also, if you are squeamish, this episode is probably not for you. The sources that I used for today's episode will all be available in the show notes. Dr. Walter Freeman came from a long line of doctors, including his grandfather, who was a well-known Civil War surgeon, and he was a huge showman. His father was also a very successful doctor, but not a showman. He was quite serious. And Freeman really aspired to be like his grandfather. He looked up to him very much. Freeman knew he wanted to be a doctor from a young age, and when he was old enough to go to college, he set his sights on Yale University. He attended Yale from 1912 to 1916, so just four years before he graduated there, and then he went on to study neurology. In 1924, Freeman would move to Washington, D.C., where he became the first neurologist in the city at the time. He quickly rose up the ranks, and he became the director of labs at St. Elizabeth's. He eventually got his PhD in neuropathology, and a few years later, he got a job at George Washington University in DC as the head of neurology. Walter Freeman often worked with mentally ill patients, and he noticed how poorly these patients were often treated and how misunderstood they were. He wanted a solution, so after stumbling across pioneering lobotomy research from Dr. Moniz, Freeman was inspired. But Walter Freeman was not a surgeon. If he was going to start doing lobotomies, he needed some help. So enters his friend, neurosurgeon, Dr. James W. Watts. Together, the pair would become the first in the United States to eventually perform the prefrontal lobotomy by craniotomy in the operating room. The lobotomy initially came about as a catch-all cure for mental illness, using air quotes if you're listening on the podcast. Uh, Anything from schizophrenia to depression, melancholia, headaches, even For women not wanting to have sex with your husband, you could qualify for a lobotomy. As far as schizophrenia goes, though, there was this big umbrella term for it, which we'll talk more about in a minute. But basically, a lot of the people who got lobotomies were considered schizophrenic, but a lot of them were not. 
Doctors during this time period also called these mentally ill patients undesirables and unagreeables. And not to mention, people who did get lobotomies were often operated on without their consent, and they would often forget the procedure altogether. They would just be super confused why they had all of a sudden lost their sense of self, why they couldn't carry out certain tasks anymore, uh, why their personalities had changed. And the only group of people that conveniently seemed to be excluded from this procedure were white men. Nobody else was safe. 60% of these procedures were in women, and people diagnosed as schizophrenic, again using air quotes, also qualified. But back then, we had a very inaccurate and much more broad understanding of what schizophrenia was. So anything from depression, anxiety, insomnia, chronic headaches, to homosexual tendencies, that's the term that was used then, fell under the schizophrenic umbrella. So you can see where this would be problematic. So back to Freeman. His whole thing was he wanted to perfect the lobotomy, and he wanted to be seen as this pioneer, this heroic doctor that would go down in history, just like his grandfather. He wanted to make the lobotomy faster, accessible, and easier. And Freeman thought that psychosis was due to excessive self-reflection or fixated thoughts. So he saw the lobotomy as a way to get rid of those endlessly circling thoughts, which to me is something that like everybody deals with. But he saw the lobotomy as a way to get rid of that. And Dr. Moniz's technique at this time was known as a leucotomy which involved taking small pieces, or what they called corings, from the patient's frontal lobe. Freeman would modify this technique. He used a flat, dull knife drilled into the side of the skull, and he would rename this surgery the lobotomy. Additionally, instead of removing corings from the frontal lobes, he would instead sever the connection between the frontal lobes and the thalamus altogether. Walter Freeman was also inspired by the work of an Italian doctor named Amaro Fiamberti, who was known to operate on the brain by going through the patient's eye sockets, allowing him easier access to the brain without drilling through the skull. So eventually, after some tweaking, the transorbital, or through the eye, lobotomy was born. Yay! Dr. Walter Freeman and Dr. Watts' first lobotomy was done in 1936 with a patient named Alice Hood Hammett. Hammett was 63 years old at the time, and she had been dealing with insomnia, anxiety, and depression. You know, pretty common diagnoses that a lot of people deal with. She was also dealing with emotional lability, which means crying or shouting, basically extreme emotions that are uncontrollable. After her lobotomy, she was able to correctly identify objects in the room, she was alert and oriented, her reflexes were intact, and her pupils were responsive. She was monitored in the hospital for a while, and she seemed to make a great recovery. And to be fair, this was a huge deal 
I mean, this was the first time in the United States that a lobotomy had ever been used or a brain surgery for that matter to treat mental illness. Alice also went on to live what seemed to be a normal life and her mental illness seemed to not control her life anymore. She was much happier. So she became the poster child for Dr. Walter Freeman's lobotomy. And this surgery became known as the surgery of the soul. By the time it was 1942, Watts and Freeman had performed over 200 lobotomies and they publicly claimed a success rate of 63%. They also claimed that 23% of the patients were unchanged and 14% of the patients were worse after surgery. Which to me, that's a pretty significant number, but I think that the way this was marketed and the propaganda that was used, it was like, let's focus on the 63%. And again, it was this catch-all cure. You have to think about during this time period, going to asylums and being committed for simple things, like having one mental breakdown or severe anxiety, depression. While we treat those today with medication and counseling and behavioral interventions, that was not common practice. So if you were dealing with things like that, it was like you kind of had one of two choices if you did choose to have a lobotomy. It was like you either go to an asylum for the rest of your life or you can have this quick and easy solution, again, using air quotes. To me, it makes sense why this became so popular. These percentages I mentioned were released in a study in their book that they called Psychosurgery. And this book became a bestseller. The American Medical Association, or the AMA, even endorsed the lobotomy during this time period. They said it was a great option to treat mental illness. During this time, Freeman was also taking photographs of these patients and documenting their recoveries. So one of his most famous cases that was documented was a woman identified as case 121. He photographed this woman over a four-year period. In the first photo taken of her prior to the lobotomy, she appears to be glaring into the camera. She's not smiling. Her brows are furrowed together, also known as RBF which I suffer from, so who knows? Maybe I would have been lobotomized. <laughs> the caption under this first photo reads, March 23rd, 1942, before operation, forever fighting the meanest woman. Another image is seen from April 4th, 1942. The same woman, uh, the top portion of her hair is buzzed from the operation and she's smiling. And the caption reads, 11 days after lobotomy, she giggles a lot, which I think is super creepy. Later images noted she had found regular employment and she had experienced some weight gain and continued to smile, which was seen as evidence that the lobotomy benefited her. Freeman continued his work and diligently kept records in his journal, including written entries and images. There were days that he would log more than two dozen lobotomies he did in a single day. So in my opinion, it would be pretty hard to sustain your attention and concentration across two dozen procedures in a day. 
Not to mention, there is documented evidence and people who have quoted Walter Freeman saying that like he did not take precautions seriously. A lot of times he didn't wear gloves and he referred to germs as that germ crap. Sorry? Hmm? What? He got to this point where you'll see, but he got to this point where it was just like he was rattling these out like it was just a normal Tuesday. So remember I said Freeman would eventually start practicing this transorbital lobotomy technique. We're at that point now in the story. It is 1945 and Freeman begins to practice this technique with an ice pick on a grapefruit and on cadavers. And it's interesting that he is practicing this because uh, I'm pretty sure that Dr. Watts has been doing all the surgeries since, you know, Freeman was not a surgeon. So why do you need to practice this, Freeman? Hmm. Let's talk about this technique first. This transorbital lobotomy involved lifting the upper eyelid and placing the point of a thin surgical instrument underneath the eyelid and against the top of the eye socket. They then used a mallet to drive through the bone and into the brain along the plane of the bridge of the nose. The surgical instrument was then malleted into the frontal lobe, pivoted 40 degrees toward the nose, then returns to the neutral position and sent a further two centimeters into the brain before it was pivoted again around 28 degrees on each side, cutting outward and again inward. This whole movement became known as a deep frontal cut and it was done to separate the white matter connecting the cortical tissue of the prefrontal cortex to the thalamus. So basically, this is a fancy and horrifying and triggering way to say they were separating that frontal lobe from the thalamus. This is a very important connection in the brain. It helps us have sense of self. The thalamus also helps us integrate senses and the frontal lobe has a lot to do with like our personality, our judgment and our attention span. So it's important these are connected to each other because we're sending signals, you know, back and forth. And there's a reason that the brain has to work in like this cyclical motion. All of this to say, this was a bad idea. <laughs> I don't really know how else to word that. This tool would then be removed from the eye socket and the same process was repeated on the other side. Gag. So just to recap, Freeman practiced this, as far as we know, on cadavers and a grapefruit for like a year. And then Walter, not a surgeon, hi, started doing this on real patients in 1946. And it's alleged that Freeman initially started doing these transorbital lobotomies with an actual ice pick from his kitchen. Yeah. He then later created what was called a leukotome. Not sure if I'm saying that right, but a leukotome, we're gonna go with that, was this sharp and thin surgical tool that he started using instead, I guess, because it was more precise, I don't know. But after using this tool so much, one time when he was operating on a patient, it broke off in the patient's skull. So this was clearly trial and error and he would later design a stronger tool. He called it an orbitoclast, 
So this transorbital lobotomy was considered so much simpler, so much so that they started doing these outside of the surgical suite and with lack of sterilization. It could be done right where the patient was, and a lot of times this would be in a mental hospital. And these facilities didn't always have anesthesia available. So if that were the case, they would use extremely high electroconvulsive shocks to render the patient unconscious, then they would do this lobotomy. The press was also invited oftentimes to report on the procedures. This is where Walter Freeman, in my opinion, becomes a showman. He started doing these surgeries in showrooms. He would invite the public to watch and again, the press, putting this on like it was some type of dark theatrical production. And the transorbital lobotomy that Freeman performed also took an average, you wanna guess how long? Not hours, not one hour, seven minutes he would do this. So if you're wondering how he would do this on dozens of patients in a day, this, this is how. So this whole transition of going out of the operating room and making this like this simple outpatient procedure and this big production apparently really turned Dr. Watts off. This was not what he signed up for. So it seems like at least one of these two guys had some some common sense. I'm not going to give him full credit, but Dr. Watts was not happy about this. They started to have some strife and disagreements. But by this point, Dr. Walter Freeman had gotten what he wanted. The lobotomy had exploded in popularity. So between 1940 and 1944, there were 684 lobotomies done in the United States. Toward the end of the decade, that number went up to over 5,000 lobotomies. And by 1951, there were nearly 19,000 people that had been lobotomized. In fact, in November 1941, Rosemary Kennedy, yes, the Kennedys, forcibly got a lobotomy under the instruction of her parents. This was done in the hopes to terminate Rosemary's obscene lifestyle. She lived a life of partying. She often acted out and she didn't mind saying what was on her mind. And you know, you can't do that as a woman, especially during this time period. The cherry on top was when Rosemary was shipped off to a convent school and the nuns apparently told her parents that they were concerned because Rosemary had been having sex with men. So while on one hand, the lobotomy did stop Rosemary from acting out, it destroyed her mentally and physically. After Rosemary had this procedure in November of 1941, she regressed to having the mental capacity of a two-year-old. She also was unable to speak properly. She could no longer control her bowels and she could not walk. Was there really a winner here? And if you haven't heard of Rosemary Kennedy before, that doesn't surprise me because after all of this happened, Rosemary was shipped off and hidden away, becoming another secret in the Kennedy's closet. And who did this lobotomy on Rosemary Kennedy? Walter Freeman, of course. 
By the time it was 1946, like I mentioned earlier, Dr. Watts and Dr. Freeman were having a lot of disagreements, and this is when Freeman had started to do lobotomies without Watts. He also started making these lobotomies really affordable, ranging anywhere from $20 to just $200. And in 1948, Dr. Freeman would start to lobotomize children. There was a 12-year-old boy named Howard Dully, and his case is pretty well known if you Google lobotomies. And Howard did not find out he got a lobotomy until he was an adult. He suspected something may have happened, because he felt like, and these were his words, he was missing something from his soul. Remember how this was called the surgery of the soul? Very interesting. So Dolly, at this time, had been diagnosed with schizophrenia when he was just four years old, which, for those of you who know anything about schizophrenia, the symptoms of schizophrenia do not become prominent usually until you are in your 30s. So for him to be diagnosed with this when he was four, I'm having a very hard time following that. Anyway, because he was diagnosed with schizophrenia, he qualified for this procedure. Now, luckily, Dolly survived, and he seemed to go on to live a normal life. But it's pretty horrifying that he had completely forgot this had happened to him. And he went through most of his life feeling like he wasn't himself, and he had no idea why. At this time, it was also illegal to engage in gay sexual relations. So you could literally go to jail for this, or you could be sent to an asylum, and you would basically get a sodomy charge. It's hard to prove this in the literature, but a lot of people believe that people in the LGBTQ community were often lobotomized as an easy way to, quote, eliminate this horrible behavior. And it is believed that Freeman did lobotomize a lot of gay men specifically. There was even one article I read that estimated about 40% of Freeman's patients were people in the LGBTQ community. In 1958, Freeman took a road trip from Nebraska to Missouri, to Cherokee, then Iowa. And during this four-day trip, he performed 50 transorbital lobotomies. He kept getting faster and faster at this procedure as well, and he started getting help from surgical assistants. It's estimated that Freeman either performed or supervised 3,500 lobotomies total during his career, and that nearly 500 people died from this procedure. So by this point, lobotomies started to be on the decline. Medical journals began to come out against the lobotomy. Even Russia banned the lobotomy, which is pretty mind-blowing. And at this point, there was also a huge uptick in opioids being prescribed to treat mental illness instead, which is a whole other can of worms. But, you know, people started to see like, hey, instead of having a brain surgery and me potentially dying or having my entire sense of self taken away, I can take this little pill and feel better instantly. So people were becoming less and less interested in brain surgery. But Freeman is in denial at this point. It doesn't matter if the lobotomy is declining. He continued to tour and do as many lobotomies as he possibly could. 
1961, he gave a speech talking about this incredible transorbital lobotomy. And Freeman had gained a negative reputation by the majority of the population at this point. So while he's giving the speech, people started heckling him. Freeman did not like that very much. So much so that Freeman waltzed off the stage. And I don't know why he had this, but he grabbed a giant box of Christmas cards that his old patients had written him. And he dumps the Christmas cards all over the stage and he just starts yelling at the hecklers. And he's like, how many Christmas cards do you get from your patients? So to me, this illustrates that Freeman was a showman at heart and he thrived on validation. So when he stopped getting this validation, he couldn't take it. In 1967, Freeman was banned from performing any further lobotomies after one of his patients suffered a fatal brain hemorrhage after getting his lobotomy. So some statistics from the 1930s to the 1970s, it's estimated that 40 to 50,000 US citizens had a lobotomy. And this procedure was still performed in these places throughout the 1980s as well. So if your parents or if you guys know anybody who had a lobotomy and they're open to talking about their experience, send me an email. I would love to hear about y'all's experiences. Freeman would later get a terminal cancer diagnosis and he would release his final lobotomy paper, citing that out of 707 schizophrenic, air quotes, patients, around 73% were still hospitalized, living at home, or they were dependent upon others. So this is a pretty high number of people who like, despite these procedures, still needed care from other people. Before he died though, Freeman was determined to find his success stories. So he drove around the country and visited a bunch of old patients almost as if he needed the validation or a reminder that he had done something good before he died from cancer. He would die in 1972, and it wasn't until his dying day that it's said he admitted the lobotomy was not a good idea. Now, there is still somewhat of a debate in the medical community as to whether or not Walter Freeman should be viewed as a monster or as like this pioneer in the medical field. People say that he helped us learn a lot about the brain and mental illness, but he got caught up in compassion, hubris, and narcissism. So there's a lot of opinions around him, but overall, I think he was a product of a very misunderstood concept of mental illness. And while it is getting better in the United States, there are a lot of programs and medications and treatments that are still like very inaccessible that would solve so many issues. Um, lowering crime, lowering rates of suicide. So like mental illness is still very misunderstood in the United States. This story definitely gives us some things to think about and things that I think we need to continue to work on. So we may never know what Dr. Walter Freeman's deep-seated intentions and desires were, but nevertheless, this story is certainly perplexing. And that is the story of Dr. Walter Freeman, the father of the lobotomy, and the conclusion of this three-part miniseries, Do No Harm. Thank you.
So what do you guys think? Do you guys think that Dr. Walter Freeman was just drunk on power? Do you think he was insane? Do you think he was a medical pioneer with good intentions? And did you enjoy this three-part mini-series? Let me know. I would love to hear your thoughts. Send me a DM on Instagram at Perplexity Mystery Podcast or email me. You can also send stories of your own or topic requests to perplexitymysterypodcast at gmail.com. And please don't forget to leave a five-star review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on if you haven't already. Or if you're watching on YouTube, hit that subscribe button. You guys have no idea how much it helps the show and how much it means to a small independent podcaster like myself. Thank you guys so much for listening. You all are amazing. Hope you have a great week and I will see you next week. Bye. Thank you for listening to Perplexity, a mystery podcast. Hosted, written, and produced by Kadra Brennan. If you enjoyed today's episode, tell the world about it by going to Apple Podcasts or Spotify and leaving a five-star review. It helps the show more than you know. Contact, support, and merch links can be found in the episode description. And if you have a story to share or a topic request, send an email to perplexitymysterypodcast at gmail.com. Kadra would love to read your story on the podcast. Until next week, stay curious.